The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast with me, Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. This week we look at two artists who've recently passed away. Later, I'll be speaking to Barbara Haskell of the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York about Robert Indiana, who died last Saturday. But first this week, we focus on the British painter Howard Hodgkin. Next week, the Gagosian Gallery in Grosvenor Hill, London, will show the final paintings Hodgkin made in Mumbai, India, before his death in March 2017. There are six paintings that were made in those final months, five of which are unveiled for the first time. But they're typical of the work Howard Hodgkin made in his later years, still possessing the vivid colour and lively expression evoking his passion for artists as diverse as Matisse, Duggar, Vuillard and the American painter Stuart Davis, but often much sparer than his earlier works, with much of the wood that had been his chosen painting surface exposed. These last works are accompanied by another 26 paintings from the last decade of his career. I'm joined by Anthony Peaty, the music writer who was Hodgkin's partner for the last three decades of his life. Anthony, I wonder if you could begin by setting the scene in terms of how these paintings were made and where. Howard had got into the habit of spending winter in India, mostly in Mumbai, Bombay, um, and we took an apartment in a block of flats with two bedrooms and the management converted the second bedroom into a studio. They very kindly and efficiently covered the carpets, took out the mirror, took out the furniture, the television, the artworks, and stripped it all back. And not only that, but they also built battens onto the wall so that Howard's pictures could hang flat because, you know, he always wanted them flat against the wall. And they had battens at the top and the bottom, so it was easy to lift them on and off the walls. How unusual was this for Howard? Because I have a sort of sense of Howard fixing in his memory the places that he visited, but making the paintings back in London. Yes, that's absolutely true. He he worked on his memory and on his experience. Julian Barnes, whom we used to go to Italy with, said that Howard would say, I feel a painting coming on, which Howard, of course, denied. Um, and Julian said he never felt a novel coming on. Um, <laughs> but there was... There was something about India and the circumstance that allowed Howard to work. And I think partly it was the difficulty of being there meant there wasn't much else you could do because once he was in the wheelchair, um, India is not built for wheelchairs. The pavements are very high off the road because of the monsoons. Everybody lives on the pavement and the banyan trees invade the pavement. So you have to be in the road most of the time. And the traffic is anarchic, but very gentle, friendly, uh, and terrifying, nevertheless. So we never, we scarcely ever went out, except by taxi. So Howard was in the apartment, looking at the view, and that included the Indian Ocean on one side and Gothic Bombay on the other. And if he woke very early, there was dawn, and somehow there was the sunset too. Uh, and th- so this, the apartment and the life there suited work. And that became his absolute priority. He just wanted to work. That's right, because I spoke to him in about ten, about ten years ago, and he, he as he, he said himself, you know, in a totally non dramatic way, he just he had a sense that time was running out, and he wanted to take advantage of all the time he had to make work. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. He did, particularly because we knew that the National Portrait Gallery show 
retrospective of his portraits was coming up after we got back in March. So when we went in December, he had that prospect in front of him, and he'd finished that autumn one painting, which was the um, portrait of the artist listening to music, which was going to be the last picture in the show. And he didn't do anything else in the studio, I think, that autumn. He kept it all in his head because when we got to Bombay and they fitted up the studio, he finished six paintings in five weeks, which was completely unheard of. It was, it was a completely different work rate and completion rate. It was astonishing. They just poured out of him, and I think they were all in his head because he, he kept them in his head and would sit in front of them, as it were, and look at them in his head one by one. That's wonderful. Tell me about the painting called Red Sky in the Morning, because it seems to me it's it's so expressive of so many of the qualities of, of Howard's work in the sense that there is great colour in it, but it's not just untrammeled, pure colour. There's this sort of sandy colour as well as a red, which kind of uh, muddies it somewhat. So when So within that, you have a sense of what comes next after Red Sky in the Morning, you know, Shepherd's Warning. So there's a there's a portent. Not there's not, there's a beauty about it, but there's a portent of a of a certain darkness. Is that fair to say? Well, I I wonder about that because Howard's titles are very uh, suggestive, but I'm not sure they always take one in the direction of their illusion. And Red Sky in the Morning it does have this blue as well as this sandy colour in it. And I looked at it a lot, and I don't feel it's ominous. I feel it's a completely positive thing. And I think he liked the fact the phrase existed. There's Red Sky in the Evening as well um, in the exhibition from earlier on. And some of his titles do not point you in the direction of their source. Like um, When the Rains Came, there's a really bad novel of that title. Well, it doesn't help to read the novel. (laughs) Uh, And Cocktails for Two, it's not about... um, Cocktails for Two or a play of that name. I think it's about the moment in the evening that divides it from the day. And there was this ritual for Howard of the V-shaped glass and his assistant Andy would mix him a cocktail. And often Howard didn't drink it. But he looked at it and he had it and it marked the end of the day. I think this is... All really instructive. There was a lovely diary, which was this this tantalising diary entry that you could read in the exhibition at the Hepworth in Wakefield, where you got a real sense of that thought process, that sort of fixing in his memory of a scene in very, very great detail. Um, And what you're saying is that it could include everything from the sublime nature of a sunset or sunrise to something as sort of mundane as as an evening cocktail. Yes, yes. And one of the pictures is called Over to You. Very, very powerful green with red on top, splashing. And uh, it alludes to a Stevie Smith poem, but it's not an illustration to the poem. And you couldn't print the picture next to the poem and expect people to go, oh, yes, there he is. Um, He died fighting bravely and true, and on his tomb was written, over to you. No, I think he takes the phrase and makes it his own. And over to you suggests to me the artist presenting the work to the public and saying, there. And there's a picture called Now. Incredibly vivid, incredibly radical. And that also is leaving it to you to make something of it, not telling you which direction to go in. 
That's right, because he didn't want the titles to be too prescriptive for the audience. There's a nice way that Timothy Hyman, the writer, put it, where he said that um, the titles, in a way, invite the audience to make a riddle out of the solution. So, in a, in a way, each individual viewer is going to take from the title and from the the, the painting itself what the, what they want, and they can go on a journey. It's absolutely true, and he was aware that all colour names have associations. There's a picture called Bombay Blues. And on the one hand, there's a literal blue in Bombay because all the tarpaulins are a very blue, very bright blue. And if you go to or from the airport, you see the shanty town covered in this magic blue colour as they um, huddle underneath. And that blue is omnipresent. And of course, there's the depressed association of blues as well, which I think is there too. So did did Howard discuss this sort of stuff with you because I know he was a very private painter he wasn't he wouldn't like to give a lot away no no he really didn't no no he didn't discuss anything he didn't want to be seen painting he didn't like unfinished pictures to be seen he didn't like multiple pictures to be seen at once in the studio they were all covered with a screen and revealed individually and he didn't discuss what he was doing the pictures emerged and then there was a title and you just sort of went oh and tell me about, I know also that he wouldn't live with his paintings, that he had many wonderful things around him, including Indian paintings of which he was such a great collector, but also a lot of the things that were actually uh, sold in an auction last year at Sotheby's. Mm. But he never lived with his own work, did he? No, no. He he wanted it to go out into the world and make room for more. It's what you said about the work being the priority. If he kept the work, he felt it would get in the way of new work. He did give me some pictures, and I wasn't allowed to display them, except in my study uh, where he sat with his back to the pictures to watch television. So the pictures were there lurking behind him. So I'm, I'm curious about Howard's experience of his own work then. So he would really only see his work while he was working on them and up until their completion and then in museums or galleries when they were displayed. He was very... A lot of artists are historians of their own work, but he absolutely wasn't. No, no, absolutely not. No, he wanted other people's work, other things to look at, not his own work. It's only since he's died that I've been able to put up the pictures that I owned that he he gave me, and um, they are very demanding. They need a lot of space, and uh, Julian Barnes once said about one that was in his front hall... um, that he couldn't always look at it. Sometimes he would go by with eyes averted because it was just too strong to take in. There is that. They have an impact. And that's why the Hepworth in Wakefield show last year was such a triumph, I felt, because it totally acknowledged Howard's uh, statement that that these paintings can kill each other if they're too hang too closely to one another. It was such a beautiful display, but there was also a sense of sadness that I felt that Howard unfortunately passed away before he had the chance to see that exhibition because I thought it was about as exemplary a show as you'll ever see of Howard's work. I absolutely agree. It was, it was, I went back to see it um, after all the fuss over the opening and I was shocked by it too because they had a little television screen showing Howard in very good form sitting on the balcony in Mumbai doing a little video, I think, before the show in the local museum um, I could give you the name of the museum. It's, it, it used to be called the Prince of Wales Museum. It's now called the Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj Vastu Sangrahalaya. <laughs> <The CSA laughs> <God, congratulations. laughs> 
they had a little film of Howard filmed uh, the year before in connection with a show in the museum in Mumbai. And he said, I feel I have a little time left and I've got a lot of work to do. And then it put in brackets, it was subtitled, Chortles. <laughs> that broke me up. I just right. remembered yeah. uh, how he was when he was really well. Because if you live with someone who's dying, uh, that's what you're left with, is the process of dying. And death has to be a release from that, from the pain and misery of the body giving up. And then there was this whole Howard from beforehand. I mean, he was 84, but he was very well before. And that was a completely new experience, seeing, remembering all that. What I was struck by seeing these last six paintings was how incredibly vivid they are and as lively and as full of colour and energy as any works he made in his entire career. Is that what you sense when you look at them too? Yes, it's like a flame because they're all different too. There are artists who do series and it has a very respectable history, whether it's electric chairs or haystacks. Um, good artists have done series, but Howard didn't. Each picture is a fresh journey out from a different proposition. So they're incredibly di disparate and each one is so fully realised, it's shocking. He obviously... It, I think he must have been aware that this was it because he hadn't, he, he didn't give up. He tried to paint when his body failed him in India, but he couldn't. His, his hands trembled and he couldn't stand even to paint because he sat a lot at, towards the end and painted less. As you know, he said, I, I think more and I paint less. So the paint is often thin thinly layered or leaving expanses of wood to be eloquent in their own right. But um, he just couldn't. And uh, yet six paintings in five weeks is phenomenal. Indeed it is. Let's talk about his legacy because there's, you're embarking on a project where you're, where you're selling prints at Sotheby's in order to raise the funds to gather a complete collection of his prints yes i'm selling duplicates howard kept a lot of the artist proofs that artists get separate from the edition and they the artist proofs are for them to give away or sell as they like and howard kept most of them in fact alan christier stored them for him and the duplicates are going to sale so that i can buy back the ones that we do not have and there are quite a few um, from all periods but I found the second and third prints that he made back in the 50s. Um, one came up at Sotheby's and they allowed me to buy it before the sale. And another was found in uh, uh, South Africa. Um, I think they were students of Howard at Corsham who'd gone off and kept these works. But the very first one has disappeared called Acquainted with the Night from 1953. It's illustrating, a, well, it's, in relation to a Robert Frost poem. And I think all the students were set the task of doing a picture relating to the poem. That's disappeared. And Howard, when he did an exhibition at Alan Christair Gallery, did a print called Acquainted with the Night. But it's not that one. It's the 1953 one that we're looking out for. So any listeners, <laughs> if you have that print, please get in touch with us. That's a lovely idea. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the things about this which I'm so impressed by is that is is 
is that Howard is, an, is a remarkable printmaker. And in a way, the paintings have become the thing he's most famous for. But his work on paper is underrated, I feel. And he, he genuinely pioneered new techniques, didn't he? Because there was, there's, he's working with etching, but also hand colouring and all sorts of techniques which are quite innovative. Mm. Tell me a bit about his printmaking. Well, it was for him the chance to get out of the solitude of the studio, and that was double-edged. So when he found a printmaker that he respected and he could work with, like Jack Sharif at 107 Workshop or Maurice Payne or Aldo Cromelank in Paris or recently Andrew Smith, uh, there was a real joy in collaborating. And um, Jack Sharif taught him to use carborundum, for example, which is where you take... Um, filings which are very very hard metal and you make them a little mound on the plate and when the paper passes over it it becomes a valley so that you have a three-dimensional effect in a print and there are many many prints of Howard's that when you look at you think it's an uh, an illusion it isn't it is actually geography Uh, and uh, he wasn't just that technical thing he also wanted the prints to be multiples but unique so that hand colouring brings that out and he would do a print and hand colour it in front of the uh, printmaker who would watch very carefully, take notes, imitate and then show it to him for approval. And uh, he once said he got into trouble in New York with a very good printmaker. He said, oh, come on, it's as easy as hitting a baby. And she looked at him in total shock and horror. (laughs) Tell me about what will happen to this collection once you've assembled it. Well, a British museum will house it, and I'm not allowed to say which because it hasn't gone to the trustees and the curators haven't agreed, um, but it will it, it will carry on from what they already have and fill in the gaps. And then, as you know, a museum preserves, lends, shows, and that will be exciting. So the prints will be somewhere where they can be seen widely instead of being distributed in bedrooms across the whole of the world. They'll be out in the open at some time or another. One of the things I was struck by about the two big shows which appeared after Howard's death is that they were probably the most rapturously received exhibitions he'd had. And of course, he wasn't here to see that rapture. How did that feel? Well, it was incredibly poignant because um, it really mattered to Howard that people saw his work. He wanted to reach people the paintings are there to communicate feelings and they have to that's a dialogue it needs an audience they and uh he never really believed that that was happening i remember we walked across waterloo bridge to the hayward gallery to see the retrospective and we looked down and saw a large amount of people outside oh howard said to me look a bomb scare and i said no howard it's a cue to get in So he would have been absolutely thrilled to think of the crowds at the National Portrait Gallery or at the Hepworth Wakefield. He'd have been very, very happy. And lastly, I'd like to ask you about Howard's remarkable collection of Indian paintings, a collection which has been shown in museums on several occasions. What's the future for that collection? Well, Howard stipulated that if possible he would like it kept together. And the only way to do that is to find a museum to house it um, or an individual though they're less accountable Um, so we're exploring that there's a trust and trustees and a long elaborate process of finding what is possible 
and we haven't yet got a solution. Okay, well, very good luck with that. Thank Thank you you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Howard Hodgkin, Last Paintings, is at the Gagosian Gallery in Grosvenor Hill, London, from the 1st of June until the 28th of July. Sotheby's auction of Hodgkin's prints is on the 12th of June, and you can see the works from the 8th of June at Sotheby's Galleries in London. Hodgkin's designs for Leila and Majnun, a new choreography by Mark Morris in collaboration with Silk Road Ensemble, is at Sadler's Wells this November. Now, Robert Indiana created one of the most famous images in 20th century American art. Love, both a painting and a sculpture featuring the word spelt out, with the letter L and a tilted O sitting atop the V and E. It was the work that made his reputation, and yet it was a mixed blessing. He said, Love clinched my whole career. It put me on the map, but it has caused me grief and unhappiness, rip-offs and endless unpleasantness. Robert Storr, the critic and curator, went so far as to say that the work has overshadowed absolutely everything else he has done. Indiana fell from critical and curatorial favour towards the end of the 60s and left New York for good, relocating to Vinylhaven, an island in Maine, in 1968. It took until the past decade for him to experience a major resurgence. By the time of his death, he had had an acclaimed retrospective at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York in 2013, and his market, too, was very healthy. But there was an unpleasantness to the end. The artist died the day after a lawsuit was filed over his legacy in a Manhattan court by the Morgan Art Foundation, his representative for many years. It claims that his current caretaker and assistant, Jamie Thomas, and an art publisher, Michael McKenzie, isolated the artist from friends and produced dubious works in his name over the past two years. Thomas and McKenzie have said that they were fulfilling Indiana's wishes in keeping visitors away, and he authorised all the new works that they created. Barbara Haskell, the curator of that Whitney Museum exhibition in 2013, joins me on the line from New York. Barbara, love was a complex image, uh, a complex work for Robert Indiana in the sense that it was it was important in terms of his reputation in both a positive and negative sense. Can you tell me about your perception of that? Well, I think I mean I think you're right. I think it you know in some ways it brought him immense fame and I actually because we have this show of Grant Wood at the museum it's very similar to American Gothic I mean love came on the market and then immediately it and Robert Indiana were household names the image just went viral um, and and spoke to a moment in time uh, you know addressed the counterculture and the sexual revolution that was happening in the mid-60s so it embodied a zeitgeist, I think, in a way that very few images do. You know, they occur once, you know, in the 30s it happened, and then Robert Indiana does it again in the 60s. So it's, it was, it's a very compelling image. Um, and so on one hand, it, you know, as I say, it brought, it brought Indiana just tremendous fame. But what ends up happening, because of its proliferation, um, both both proliferation that Indiana was responsible for, but also the kind of tchotchka, um images that began to that were all over on coffee cups and keychains and things like that. That there was a that it that the art world in a way turned against Indiana, and and began to to um, you know think that he was exploiting this image and that that he that he wasn't moving on. Um, you know, wasn't that the work wasn't evolving. And he did make, the, I think, a calculated mistake that his second show focused on the same image. 
you know, it focused on love in, in different variations. And that just reinforced the idea that somehow he was um, not moving forward. So it was both the best thing that happened to him and the worst thing that happened to him. Tell me about the, your show that you did at the Whitney then, because it's called Beyond Love, which is obviously a big statement. That's right. So one of the things the show aimed to do, and I think succeeded in doing, was to present the body of work, the, the, the context in which love had been created. That Indiana did some of the most wonderful, strong, powerful work in the early 60s um, of any any of those of that generation in fact he was you know on a you know some of the critics said you know this is the artist to watch so the, and i i think that the whitney show brought back that work that people had forgotten about that love had kind of subsumed indiana's career and that looking at that earlier work really showed an artist that was at the actually top, you know at the top of of um, sense of what the 60s was about that he was one really one of the leading pop artists of his of his time and that that's what the show aimed to do that he had this amazing body of painting and sculpture in the in the early 60s and then you know continued several there were several series that you know managed to reach that same level of achievement after that but um, you know, love was not the only work he did. That was that was one of the messages of the Whitney exhibition. You're right to point to that context because, of course, love pointed to the '60s context of free love and that, and the hippie movement that, that was to come and sexual liberation. But it, but also he was he made a series of works, the Confederate series or Confederacy, Confederacy series, which was directly addressing the civil rights struggle. So he was a, he was a, he was he was a deeply political artist, actually. He was very political, very political, and I think one of the things that the exhibit that the Whitney exhibition brought out, um, and and actually because because of it made sort of expanded the the understanding of love itself, the the image is that Indiana was it was always a very political artist in everything he did, much more so than even other of his colleagues. That even that the early paintings all addressed. Um, the kind of dark side of the American dream that and he managed to he managed to make work that was simultaneously celebratory and critical and that was what was sort of remarkable about it that he with these high key colors and hard edge shapes that he and the the sort of imagery of advertising that he created a you know seemed like a positive vision of America. And actually, at one point, even said, you know, America is the best of all possible worlds. But then he also, the work contained this, you know, subtext of, of avarice and disappointment, um, redemption and sex and and sin, that were the kind of underlying tone of the work and that, that, that love can love does the same thing that on one hand it does celebrate this sort of superficial idea about brotherhood and peace and um you know undying affection unconditional uh, amor um but at the same time because of of the 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 o that's sort of at a at a very precarious position in the composition it suggests that precarious 
quality of love, which in, for Indiana was, as he said, a, a perilous commodity. It was dangerous. You know, his own experiences with love were very disappointing. And somehow the piece contained both both those ideas, as, as did his his other work. And to come back to the Confederacy series, I'm, I'm conscious that a lot of the work that he made in the 60s speaks to the present moment in America very powerfully. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, no, totally. I, and he, the Confederacy series is, you know, one of the strongest, um, yeah, most unadorned statements about, yeah, about civil rights and social justice. Indeed. Now, he moved out in New York in the late 60s, and there was some intimation that in a way he felt sort of forced out of New York because of the sort of critical response to his work. What can you say about the work he made after that in, in, on this island in Maine? Well, I think that one of the, you know, when you move out of the city, it's always hard to keep the sense of intensity with with one's work. He did do several series that are that were powerful. I think the Hartley series that he did, he the the idea of Hartley having lived on this island, Indiana identified with Hartley as a homosexual who had been disappointed in love himself. Um, that 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 was a series that. Uh, that spoke to something in Indiana's core that that he was able to tap into and create a really powerful series of of work. A number of the other series that he did kind of repeated motifs that he'd done in earlier in in earlier times, and I think didn't um, you know he he came back to the idea of of American imperialism, you know, our, our wars in other parts of the world, Afghanistan, for example, and did a series of works on peace. Um, so the themes were this, were very much the same in a good way. I mean, he approached the same themes from a different perspective, but I think the strongest of the late work is the Hartley series. Now, one of the th- things that struck me is that he's oft- he's seen as a pop artist, but at the same time, he clearly felt that his work fitted in with other traditions as well as the pop world. And and um, of course, he was involved with Ellsworth Kelly. He was he and Ellsworth Kelly were lovers, and he he sort of saw himself as much in uh, the same company as people like Kelly and that sort of hard edged abstraction as he did within the pop art scene. Right. Um, there are very few pop artists who really like that designation of pop art. That's right. Um, yeah. So, so Bob wasn't unusual in that regard. But he did acknowledge that that it that he rode the pop art wave. There was one comment he made to one reporter. He said, "I, I know I'm sitting here only because of pop art." So that he he was part he was seen as part of a movement, even though the work was very different. I mean, the other most of the other pop artists took pre-existing images they appropriated images from media and from from the world and bob created his imagery his his work you know emulated the work of you know advertising and and roadside signs but he but they were he he invented his imagery in a way that the other pop artists didn't can you shed any light on this this recent development that just days before he died uh, a lawsuit was filed which which claimed that there were these two men who were keeping his friends from him. Did you have any experience of this? I I didn't um only because I you know did, sort of lost 
contact. I didn't stay in contact with him after the exhibition, so I didn't. Um, yeah, I never was rebuffed in a way that it seems other friends like Don Wilmerding were. But is there any? Um, have you got any indication of what will happen to his own collection now? Because he's sort of made mutterings that he may give it to a museum. Uh, do you know if there are any? Is there if there's any intention in that direction yet? Well, I think that the, it's it's all what I mean. I, I think it will be revealed when the will is is made public. Uh, you know, it's hard to it's hard to. I, I don't think anyone really knows. But I think in terms of his legacy, he's an artist who's left us with a lot to discover as well as a lot to admire in terms of his very famous images. That's right. That's right. There's a lot more than that very famous image. And even that very famous image is, you know, it has that it's a lot more complex than people have sometimes assumed. Well, thank you very much for joining us to talk about him. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week. You can let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. And don't forget that the June print edition of The Art Newspaper is out next week. You can subscribe at theartnewspaper.com. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>